The reading this evening's from Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1, um, and that's on page 2 of the Church Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me with whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, 
the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Bob, thank you for reading for us. Um, we're going to be looking at this passage together, just verses 7 to 24 of chapter 3. We did the, last, the first six verses last week. And uh, we, as you have gathered, as it was read, it's both a wonderful passage, but also a terrible passage for us to hear. Um, so let's pray as we come to it uh, together. Our Father, um, as we have heard your word to us tonight, um, we come... Uh, feeling already the effects of the fall in our lives, some of us very acutely, um, even over this past week. And so we pray that as we come to your word, uh, you would give us understanding by your spirit and that you would minister to us as well, Lord, that you would comfort us in the sufferings of this world, you would deal with us in our need for repentance, and Lord, that you would give us a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So why is the world the way that it is? Why is our world such a mixture? Sunsets and waterfalls and soaring mountains and glorious white sands, all creatures great and small, such glory in creation. Yeah, that's only half the story. There's also the devastation of earthquakes and famines and tsunamis and hurricanes and nature red in tooth and claw. Such a mixture, such amazing beauty and terrible ugliness. So much for us to wonder at and so much for us to fear. A world full of life and a world full of death. And humanity, why is humanity such a mixture too? So gifted with productivity and creativity and artistry and technological ingenuity and so rich in kindness and compassion and love, yet also with this streak of wickedness, turning productivity into greed, artistry into depravity, technology into weaponry, and so much cruelty and hatred and selfishness. Famously, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said that Humanity is both the glory and the garbage of the universe. What sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. Repository of truth, sink of doubt and error. Glory and refuse of the universe. What best explains our world? What best explains us? Life and death, beauty and ugliness, glory and garbage. Why is it like this? Here in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible provides a profound answer to that question. Up to now, in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen the glory. God made a perfect creation, 
made humanity in his image, man and woman, and he placed them in a garden of Eden, a paradise, in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. Well, that explains one side of the mixture. There is glory. Well, then it all goes wrong. And we looked at this last week in detail. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 6 is the turning point. The man and the woman, they're deceived by the serpent into disobeying God. They eat from the tree that he'd commanded them not to. Satan convinced them that disobedience was reasonable, that it was inconsequential, that nothing bad would happen. And he made it seem attractive. He claimed that they could be like God, that they could make their own rules on what was good and what was evil. And so they ate. And that moment would have catastrophic consequences. Consequences that take effect on three main levels that we'll see in our passage tonight. The personal in our relationships, the physical in our bodies, and the spiritual in our access to a relationship with God. We'll see that played out for us. The passage is structured uh, slightly differently. It's structured, as you see, on the back of the service sheet. Uh, four different, well, three, three sections and one bonus one. Uh, cover up, cursed, cast out, and then some clues of hope. So first of all, verse 7 to 13, cover up. Verse 7 is a little bit of a shock. God's command had said that eating the fruit meant death. At the end of verse 6, they ate, and yet, verse 7, they don't die. But it does become clear that something has changed for them, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes are open, that's what Satan had promised, but not in the way that they hoped. They hoped to become wise like God's. They hoped to grasp equality with him. But that's not what happens. Instead, they see their nakedness. Now, their nakedness had never bothered them before, but now it does. Why do they feel that they need to cover themselves? Well, the clue was given at the end of chapter 2 in verse 25. We read there that, they, that before they ate the fruit, they were naked and unashamed. That is, before their sin, they could truly be themselves. They could be completely open to one another. They had figuratively and literally nothing to hide. They were innocent. But now they see their nakedness and they feel exposed. They experience shame. That's the inevitable consequence of sin. And so their first instinct is to cover up. They hide themselves from each other. That's not the only hiding that they do. Read on to verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, 
and I hid myself. Their biggest concern is not their vulnerability to each other, but their vulnerability before a holy God. They're afraid. They hear God coming. They're afraid, and they take to the trees. And if you think about it, it's a really sort of pretty stupid thing to do. I mean, God, of course, he can see everything. He knows where they are, and he knows full well what they've done. But that's what sin does. Sin makes us fearful of judgment and try to hide ourselves. So a child, a child puts the, the broken toy in the bin without telling the parents. A husband deletes his browser history in case his wife sees it. A politician, they bury the negative story by creating a distraction that they know the papers will pick up. They make you look the other way. And this is what we all do with God as well. It's sin and cover up. Hide it away. Hope no one finds out. Hope that you can get away with it. But it doesn't work. Not in the end. I mean, fig leaves, they can't really cover you up properly, can they? Trees won't hide you very well. All we achieve is to distance ourselves from each other and from God. And our sins will find us out in the end. We have this problem. Our shame over our sin, it means that we we have to hide. But we can't hide from an all-seeing, all-knowing God and his perfect justice. Now in this first sin, this first fall, before the judgment of God is pronounced, humanity tries another tactic which we still employ today. If we can't cover up, then we can pass the buck. And that's what they try next, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. We move from shame to the blame game. And again, we love to do this, don't we? It wasn't me, it was all her fault. It wasn't my fault, it was his. And I know this tactic very well, don't you? Already fractures are beginning to appear between the man and the woman. But notice actually something else here too, that Adam, he doesn't merely blame the woman, does he? Just look at what he says. It is the woman whom you gave to be with me. He's blaming God. I wouldn't have done it had you not made it possible, God. So aren't we just like our first parents? We do our best to hide our sin. We try to cover our shame. And if that doesn't work, well, what we do is we shift the blame to others and then to the Lord. In them, we see ourselves. But that tactic won't wash with God. God's not fooled. He knows all. He sees all. He judges all with perfect justice. And all are held responsible for their own actions. That's what we see next. We come next to what we call the curse. See, humanity and the creation, it is fallen. Sometimes we talk about the fall. We talk about a fallen world. That is true. But it's also cursed. It is under the judgment of God's. Is verse 14 to 19. Cursed. 
Now, let's just take our minds back into chapter 1 and 2. What did we see? We saw God blessing humanity. He blessed the man and woman in multiple ways. He blessed them with life from the dust. He made them in his image, put his breath into their bodies, gave them a home in this rich and beautiful garden. He gave them easy work and plentiful food, and he gave them each other. There was a joyful partnership in a one-flesh union. It was a world full of blessing after blessing. Now notice here that in this fallen world, in this cursed world, for the most part, those blessings, they're not completely obliterated. They don't just disappear. God doesn't take them away completely. So they don't die instantly. They don't lose their image of God entirely. They don't lose their role in creation. They still rule over the animals. They don't lose their food. They don't lose each other. No, they're not taken away completely, but what happens is that everything becomes hard. The good things become cursed. They're fractured, they're painful. And so this world becomes a mix of glory and garbage. A world created very good. It retains its goodness, but it's now a world under judgment at the same time. It's a cursed world. So let's turn to the curses. Uh, The first one falls upon the serpent, verse 14 to 15. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you were here last week, we learned that this serpent was a creature. He was a beast of the field that had been co-opted by Satan, the evil one, the great deceiver of the world. And so this curse works on multiple levels. So on the creaturely level... Uh, the serpent is reduced to a life of slithering in the dust. And the serpent seems to represent in some way um, all the creatures, all the animals. Uh, We discover that from now on, instead of the peaceful rule of humanity over the creatures, there will be conflicts between the creatures and the woman's descendants. It will will kill and be killed. Um, Just this week, there's a gruesome story uh, from Australia about a man who was eaten by a crocodile. Did you see that? And he's discovered his remains in the crocodile. And what did the people do when they discovered that he'd been eaten? Well, they killed the crocodile. And they killed also the crocodile's friend who had nothing to do with it um, as well. It's kill and be killed. So that's here in this um, curse. But there's more to it. Notice that verse 15 introduces the term offspring. Your offspring, her offspring. This is where there's a deeper level of understanding. That word offspring is going to be really important throughout the rest of the series of Genesis. Throughout Genesis, there's going to be played out for us this great conflict between two kinds of people. There are those of the line of promise, those whom God will choose, Eve's offspring, and there are those who oppose God's people, the serpent's offspring. And we're going to need to watch out for that theme as we go all the way through 
the story. So for every Abel, there is a Cain. For every Isaac, there's an Ishmael. For every Jacob, an Esau. Then on into Exodus, for every Moses, there's a Pharaoh. For every Israel, there's an Egypt. There are those whom God will call his sons, and those who are the sons of the serpents. And it's there, right through all the way to the days of Jesus and the apostles, the religious leadership who opposed them. He tells them that Satan is their father. And it's still true today. There are two lines, two peoples, two kinds of offspring. There is the world under the dominion of Satan, and there is the church, the children of God. So this this curse, it sets the course for the rest of human history. Now, there's one more thing to say about this verse, which we'll come back to uh, later on. But let's now turn to the next one, uh, the curse on the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Her family life is to be spoiled The bringing forth of children, a source of great joy and blessing for her, will now come with great pain also. Now, I think perhaps there are some specific things and some general things that we can understand from this verse. First of all, the specific thing is that the physical excruciating pain of birth is explained here. The joyful task that were given to humanity, that of being fruitful and multiplying is now mixed with painful labour for the woman. But too, in a more general sense, the word pain here, it can also mean sorrow. And perhaps that captures something too here of the curse. The sorrow of childlessness. The sorrow of miscarriage. The sorrow of child sickness. And the deep sorrow of the death of a child. That's something Eve will know herself in just the chapter's time. See, all these sorrows, they, they enter our world in this moment. And also, I think, the difficulty, the, the pain of child-rearing as well. That second phrase in verse 16, in pain you shall bring forth children, I think that perhaps is speaking more about the raising of children than their physical birth. And those of us who have kids, we we know, don't we, that it is hard work. They're a blessing in many ways, but they're also immensely painful for us. They act in rebellion. They make choices in life that are foolish. They say hurtful things, and so on and so on. And many of us have experienced this, the the heartache, the anxiety, the, the sorrow over our kids. Of course, here it's worth pointing out that, as in the previous curse, although it falls on one party here on the woman, the effect of it is not limited to her, is it? It has a broader impact, an impact on the family and, of course, on the wider society and culture. Then there's one more element, second part of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, this verse is difficult to translate. In fact, I discovered this week that the ESV translations that you have 
in your hands are two different versions. There's one from 2002 and one from 2016. They're different size Bibles, and they translate it differently, <laughs> um, which is unfortunate. It makes it a little bit harder. Essentially, it can read as desire for your husband or desire against your husband or, or contrary to your husband. Now, I know you don't really want me to get into a translation debate um, here. Let's, do, let's just take a step back and get the, the, the wider sense of what's going on. What we see here in this phrase is God's good design for marriage become distorted. And I think, too, it has wider implications for society uh, as a whole. What was designed by God in Genesis 2 as a relationship of equal yet complementary partnership, the role of godly servant headship for the husband, and a fulfilling and honoured helper role for the wife, it now becomes a battle for supremacy. In wanting to be like God, each partner wants now to play that role over the other. So for the woman's part, she'll be tempted to master her husband. And for the husband's part, he'll be tempted to use his physical power to dominate her. And it is a distortion, and it is really ugly. And it's played out through Genesis and the rest of the Bible, and of course it's played out in world history up to today, both in marriages and in wider societal issues. The Bible tells us that this is not how it was meant to be that we've moved away from God's good design and that the roots are here in humanity's rebellion and the judgment that that brought. Now, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to think more widely about this issue in a one-off sermon on men and women. For now, let's just step back and see the big picture. What do we see? What is this curse about? The curse on the woman is one that devastates one of humanity's most fundamental blessings our closest relationships with our kids, with our spouses, between men and women. They now bring us pain and sorrow. Let's move then to the final curse. It's the longest one, and I think the most serious one, the judgment on the man. Now, what do we hear God say to Adam in verse 7, 17 to 19? Because you listened... And you ate, in full knowledge of God's command not to, cursed is the ground because of you. The curse is upon the earth itself. Adam too is going to have pain. It's exactly the same word used to describe Eve's pain. But whereas Eve's pain is focused in the family, Adam's is in the workplace. Again, what's been a blessing has become a curse. So you ever wondered why your work can be so exciting and yet so draining? Why it can be so fulfilling and yet so frustrating as well? Well, here it is. Work becomes labour. The ground won't be as productive as it once was. Putting bread on the table comes only with toil. Computer crashes, copier jams, accidentally saving over a file like I did when I was doing this sermon earlier this week. Stress headaches, sweat patches, carpal tunnel syndrome. 
exam pressures, some of you know that, don't you? Essay deadlines, orders that are late, pipes that keep leaking, meetings that are boring, endless papers to mark, another shelf to stack. There's satisfaction in a task well done. We know that, don't we? There's real fulfillment in a career. There's things that can be achieved. There's still some kind of blessing that remains, but it's now hard going. It's labor. It's pain and struggle. And then at the end of it all is death. Now there's a cheery thought, isn't it? Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All that toil only to face death at the end of it all. God said that death would come as a result of eating the fruit of the tree, and here it is, it is inevitable. The words of the preacher by the graveside, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The terrible conclusion of the curse. I wonder what you make of all that. Does it not profoundly explain our mixed-up experience of the world? Is this not just how it is, the blessing and the curse, the beauty and the ugliness of creation, the glory and the garbage of humanity? Is there any explanation out there that's better than this? That we live in a paradise cursed. Now, in the last few verses, I'm sorry to break it to you, but there's actually worse news to come. We move from cover up to curse to cast out. Just look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cast out from the presence of the Lord, with no way back, a barrier put between us, the, the entry point fiercely guarded, and that means the access to the tree of life is over. Rebellious, sinful humanity cannot live forever anymore. At the beginning of our section, we saw humanity put distance between themselves and God. They were hiding in shame. Or here we see God put distance between himself and humanity. The most essential and meaningful relationship that human beings had has been doubly broken. We've hidden ourselves in shame and then we've been cast out of God's presence with a no-entry sign and an armed guard on the door. And that teaches that our death is not merely physical, but spiritual and eternal. 
really is pretty bleak. If this is it, then there really is no hope for humanity. Humanity's blown it. Just in chapter 3 of the Bible, we've already blown it. It's fallen, it's cursed, it's under judgment. Our lives are spoiled with pain and sorrow and struggle and sweat and suffering before death and eternity in hell, cast out from God's presence. Is that it? No, it's not. There are some clues of hope, just some clues that the rest of the Bible will answer for us. Let me just briefly show those to you. Some clues of hope, verse 9, verse 15, verse 20, and verse 21. So humanity has made a complete mess of things. It can't possibly redeem itself. If God has cast us out, then only he can bring us back. And the question is, does he want to? Well, verse 9 holds our first clue. Verse 9, God seeks out the man. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He came looking for Adam. And God, of course, knew full well where he was, and he could have zapped him there and then where he stood, but instead he wanted to engage with him in conversation. He wanted to draw him out of hiding. It's just a glimmer of hope. Could it be that God might want to deal with our sin and shame? That he might want to find a way to bring us back into his presence? Could it be that the Lord God is the kind of God who might come to this earth to seek and save the lost? There's another clue in verse 20 and 21. We skipped these verses earlier on. Just look at the kindness and the grace of God here. Humanity didn't die immediately. Life went on for a time for Adam and Eve themselves, but then Eve's name, Adam named her, and it meant living. God gave her children. Life went on. And then God provided clothes for them. He met their most basic needs for the hard and painful world that they're about to enter. Just another clue, another reason to hope. He's proved to be a God of grace towards rebellious sinners. But the biggest clue is found in verse 15. Curse on the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've already noted that this verse describes the conflict between the faithful and those opposed to them. But here is that one more level of meaning. It holds out hope of one particular offspring, one child, a he, one born of a woman who will come to deal with the great enemy of God's people, one who will crush the serpent's head, yet who in the process will receive a mortal blow, the Lord Jesus Christ. We heard this verse this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It tells us all about him. That the Son of God, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise 
partook of the same things, that is, he took on flesh and blood, that through death, the blow of the serpent, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Genesis chapter 3 tells us how we have spoiled this world and ourselves through our rebellion. Though the creation still tells of the glory of God, it speaks too of the garbage that we've brought in. It's on the personal level, the broken relationships, the physical in our bodies, the labor and pain and death that we face. And on the spiritual level, the barrier of access to God which continues into eternity. It's terrible. But there is also hope in this chapter. Hope not in ourselves, though. Hope in God. The gracious God, the merciful God, the rescuing God, and the one he will send, the offspring, Jesus Christ, who will reverse the curse and restore all things. Our hope is in him. Let's pray. Our Father, as we encounter your words in this astonishing and amazing passage, we first of all recognize ourselves in our first parents. We know that we're just like them, that we're full of sin and covered in shame, that we seek to hide our sin, that we seek to blame other people, And yet we have no way out. We know that we are guilty before a holy and just God as yourself. And so, Lord God, we thank you that you have provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ, that he deals with our sin on the cross and removes our shame and enables us to enter back into your wonderful presence. Father, we pray too, as we began as well, and we pray particularly for those among us tonight who are feeling very much the effects of the curses that we see in this passage. Well, we pray that in your mercy you would bring comfort, that you would bring peace, and that you would bring hope that one day all these things will be dealt with, that when the Lord Jesus comes back, he will undo all that's gone wrong. Father, we pray and hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.